boys and girls, welcome back to another episode of Cut the Shit, Get Fit. Today is episode 162 with Dr. Lisa Lewis, and I'm super excited about this episode because we touch on a bunch of topics that not a lot of people talk about in our industry, such as mental health. This episode is filled with stuff from how to find a right psychologist counselor for you, from medication to how coaching is more than just telling people what to do and giving us actionable steps to helping others. So hopefully you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Here's Dr. Lisa Lewis. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Cut the Shit, Get Fit. I'm your lovely host, Rafael Matuszewski, and joining me today, once again on the show, is Lisa Lewis. Say hello. Hi, thanks for having me back. No problem. So it's been quite a while since, I think it's almost been a year, or over a year, but uh, give us an update of what's been new, what you've been doing, and things like that. Thanks for asking. Lots of new things. I feel like my whole life has changed since the last time we spoke. I think I had a newborn Mm-hmm. Um, the last time I was, I was on the show and, um, in October of 2017, I left my day job, like my full-time nine to five, mm-hmm. you know, my secure gig. And since that time I've been doing a variety of things that I love and, and just essentially building my own business. So I've, um, been teaching at a local university, which I'll continue doing, but, um, I got a website together, um, it's called drlewisconsulting.com and, um, have been building my private practice, my private consultation, and then also, um, just trying to do more speaking engagements and workshops for people in the fitness industry. Um, because I just, lo- I have really loved doing that and, and feel like there's kind of a need for that in the industry that people um, who are fitness professionals want to talk more about the psychological side of things. Um, and so it's been really fabulous to kind of let go of the security of the nine to five, but also let go of all the obligations and kind of chore parts of work that mm-hmm. um, I didn't really love so much. No, definitely. And here we are. <laughs> nice. So, mm-hmm. like, what was the um, point of your life where you felt like, all right, I can give up the nine to five and focus on all these different projects? Like, what was the tipping point for you? Oh my god! And it it totally was not what it should have been, which is like um, centered in myself and like, okay, now it's now it feels like time. It actually felt I actually wanted to get out of my nine to five for a long time and kept feeling my husband's an entrepreneur. He's in business for himself. So in the U S um, you basically get your health insurance through your employer. And so what was keeping me from leaving was feeling like I had the stable job with the health insurance and the retirement benefits and all that. And, um, I was afraid to take the next step because I number one had that security, but also we were going to have a baby. And so it felt like responsible to, keep that kind of security. So I thought to myself, maybe after I have the baby, I'll feel a little more content with maybe not having my dream career, but holding it down for the family. And so I anticipated that I would relax about my aspirations, but actually having a baby just pushed me is that is what got me to the tipping point because 
I was gone all day, every single day, separated from my baby and not able to do things professionally that I loved doing for what, like to be in a job that was not fulfilling and that was aggravating. So it, it got me to the level of aggravated that just got to like, what is the point, um, of me being separated from my little one and to be doing stuff I don't want to be doing. So he actually, instead of making me more complacent and more content, he actually got me to make the leap. And it's probably the best, it's definitely the best thing I've done in my professional life for sure. And we're just, you know, like many people, we're just managing the paying for your own health insurance. And, you know, my husband and I are both in business for ourselves and lots of people do it. And, you know, mentally, I think it's an adjustment, but um, definitely, definitely worth it. Nice. So when you finally quit, did it feel like almost like a weight just lifted off your shoulders and you felt just free? Yeah. That, that's, a, that's a good sign then. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of people just kind of stay in ruts and like whatever feels comfortable for them. And they're just like too scared to go into the unknown, knowing that most likely it's going to turn out to be okay. And I, I understand. I, I totally get that. And I think too, I spent many years being a poor graduate student where I had no job security and no, you know, just on my own. So there was something really safe that felt really good about being in a position, like being in a secure job that wasn't going anywhere with really stable pay and really stable benefits. There was something about it that just felt comforting and safe. And, um, and so I think that kept me stuck for a while, the, the safety that was in that. But I, for me, as soon as I let go of that, I mean, I didn't miss that. I didn't miss that for even two seconds. <laughs> nice. Actually, this so. would be a good question because I like I've met a lot of people where you know when you get to know them, you get to know what they do for work, and you can tell really fast if they actually enjoy what they do. But mm. for some weird reason, they just stay because they're like, oh, I don't know if I should change careers or like I'm kind of mm. interested. Like they're almost they're like literally stuck. And like, I don't know, I'm a type of person that always wants to progress. And I was even in a position where I had an opportunity to leave my old gym and go on to this new project. And the only reason why I like took the leap was because of my wife, because she's like, no, not in my life, but she could see from the outside in. And then she kind of laid it out all for me. And I was like, shit, like, yeah, I need to make this switch. Mm-hmm. So, like, I don't know if you can even answer this, but what kind of, like, advice would you give for someone who feels stuck in their life, job, or whatever it may be to kind of find some, like, inner growth or just personal growth to get out of that situation? My go-to recommendation would be a decisional matrix. And I often these kinds of questions come up. I've worked with college students or, and grad students for many years where would they'd be asking kind of big life questions like this. And um, what you want to do is take a sheet of paper and draw a big X in the middle of it. So there's four boxes, basically. And then on the top, you're going to write pros and cons. On the, Along the left-hand side, you're going to write, like, um, make the leap or don't make the leap. And so you basically have these four boxes where you're going to identify what would be the pros or what would be the benefits of making the leap and what would be the pros, what would be the benefits of not making the leap and staying where I am. And then what would be the consequences or what would be the scary things about making the leap um, and what would be the good things. Um, So in other words, you kind of look at the question from four different angles. 
um, and just unpack it, unpack it, unpack it, unpack it. Because if you keep having the conversation with yourself and you keep outlining what do I get out of staying how I am and what do I, what might I get out of moving forward? Um, you, you might get to a place where you're like, no movement is good for right now, but the next week or the next month, it might feel a little bit different and a little bit different. Um, and really I think the tipping point can be quite subtle. Um, it doesn't have to be some big dramatic thing that happens. Just one day you might be like, you know what? I can afford to pay for health insurance on my own. And I think once I just budget for it, it's not going to be that big a deal. Whereas like the first nine times you wrote the list, it felt like a big deal. The 10th time you write the list, eh, not such a big deal. So you want to keep an ongoing kind of negotiation or conversation in your mind. No, I like that a lot. And you called it the four dimensional matrix. Decisional matrix. Decisional. That sounds so badass. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not mine. It's a cognitive behavioral therapy exercise. Most people, I think, just do pros and cons. Mm-hmm. But there are always four sides. Or I should say there's two sides to each choice. So there's pros and cons to saying the same. And there's pros and cons to changing. And they're not necessarily the same things. So some clients, I'll give that to them as homework. Like we'll talk for a session. The first session is like, I have this choice to make. I don't know how to make the choice. And I'll assign this as homework. And like over the course of the week, I want you to keep writing things down and keep writing things down and keep unpacking it and go back to the list multiple times before we meet again. Um, because ambivalence, you know, that feeling of, do I change or not change, um, is uncomfortable. We want to make a decision in, in one way or the other. So to feel that ambivalence and unpack what it's all about can be really helpful in helping you determine which way to go. Oh, I really like stuff like that because like even with my clients that I coach like nutrition online, a lot of times I kind of just, they kind of lead me to where they want to go next. And you know, like I remember having a conversation with one uh, client in particular where we're trying to cut down her wine drinking just a tad. And like I knew it was going to be a really tough thing to do. So I like asked her, like, what are the pros of keeping your wine every single day of the week and average out to three bottles a week? And what mm-hmm. are the like, what would be, you know, the worst case scenario, best case scenario, and what would happen and how would you feel if you actually got rid of it? And mm. then it's, she's like, started thinking about it. She's like, okay, well, maybe I don't need three bottles a week. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's like, interesting. It's like, get in the weeds, like get in there. Cause there's a lot of room in between three bottles of wine and zero wine. I mean, yeah. that's like 12 glasses. Yeah. Um, so you don't have to go from 12 to zero. Um, And so I think getting in the weeds with clients can be really helpful because then you can understand like, what is, what does that mean? Is that like, is that the cue for them that now it's their time or is that the way they relax or is that help them to delay eating for 60 minutes while they're making dinner? Or is that like a a way that they share quality time with a partner? You can just learn a lot by hearing pros and cons and hearing what it, what it means to them. Um, Because if you just say, like, cut the wine, you you miss a whole Mm -hmm. lot of opportunity there. So if you had to, like, help a coach, you know, build their 
arsenal of questions to help them with their clients. Like, what are some of the questions that, you know, they should be asking? Because I find, like, when I talk to really experienced coaches, like someone like Krista Scott Dixon, for example, anytime I talk to her or hear her speak, it's like she'll ask questions to her clients where there's no, like, right or wrong answer. It just gets them to think. And I'm like man, you are like a ninja when it comes to this stuff. So like, what are the right questions we should be asking as coaches to our clients? Um, and those sound like open-ended questions to yeah. me that Krista Scott Dixon is asking. And really that should be your goal that you, as opposed to narrowing your focus and asking yes, no, black, white, concrete things, what you want to do is open it up and ask ambiguous questions. Like you said, there really is no right or wrong. Those are the best kinds of questions to ask because your clients want to have the right answer. They want to please you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we, we all have that tendency within us. So if you frame the question in a way that it's just open and you're just talking, they're much more likely to be honest. In terms of which questions you should be asking, I think it all depends upon the context. There are some go-to phrases that I use, regardless of what behavior we're talking about or what issue we're talking about. Um, One of those is, for example, tell me more about dot, dot, dot. So like, tell me more about the glass or two of wine you have at night. Like paint that picture for me. When does that happen? How does that happen? What does that look like? Um, Just to open it up. Another thing I'll, another thing I'll use when people are talking to me about something um, I'll, I'll use the expression, I wonder, because it's less pointed, um, and it's more just kind of suggesting they should say more about it. So for example, I have a client who I work with, um, who does her own food prep and has a, has a pretty easy time at home. Um, when she goes to work, she has a hard time. And so when it's like around the holidays, um, she works in a pretty big office. And so what she would start to say to me is like, over the weekend, this was great. And this was great. And and then on Wednesday, there was a freaking staff meeting. I said like, well, I, I, tell me more about the staff meeting. Well, you know, they, they bring in lunch. So there was like bagels and there was donuts and there was this and there was that. And so I'll just say like, I wonder what it is about them bringing in the spread that gets you off track. So it's just a way to reflect, like hear what they're saying or let them know like, okay, I hear that that's an issue. And then, Hmm. So I'm kind of furring my brow and wondering it's an invitation for them to wonder and talk, well, you know, I kind of hate the staff meeting and my supervisor's so irritating and I have my lunch, but then I look over there at the table and everybody's eating that and I get kind of mad. Like how come they get to eat it and I don't, or, you know, whatever. It just helps us to kind of unpack more. What are the emotional and behavioral nuances that are going on in that context that is getting the client off track. And then we can brainstorm what to do to kind of offset that. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, definitely. Like, that, that was gold. <laughs> okay. um, yeah, because like when I was chatting recently with uh, one of my listeners through uh, Facebook and like anytime someone adds me, I like I'll say like, hey, what's up? How did you find me? 
And I always ask him, like, what are you struggling with right now and what episodes have helped you? And it always comes down to, like, it's always the basic stuff. And this one person in particular had, like, an issue with, like, overeating. And I'm like, you know, the thing that you need to remember is, like, food is just, it's more than just fuel. And it's really emotional. It's really psychological. But people don't actually realize that. And just like the example you gave where, you know, you see your client in that situation and, you know, he or she looks at their coworker eating whatever they want and you're like oh what the hell why can they eat that and not gain away and gain like a pound but if i touch bread i'm gonna like balloon up so there's mm. like so much more to it and i think people kind of forget about it that mm. there's even like a cultural aspect too it's like if you go to someone's house that's uh say filipino like it's a big cultural thing to have a huge huge dinner and if you're not filled to the brim it's like disrespectful not to eat that way Mm -hmm. and people just don't think that like that stuff will happen always so you almost have to Mm. better equip yourself and also you know give yourself some grace that you're not going to be perfect Mm. but uh yeah i I don't know like people kind of miss that on a daily basis and same like I always find that people think that it has to be perfect, and if it's not perfect, it's not worth actually their time. But I'm like, no, it's it's a process. There's a lot more to it. That's why a lot of people struggle with it. Yes, and, and I think that as people helpers, no matter, you know, I'm a mental health professional, but people listening are probably fitness professionals or maybe some other kind of helper. When you're in school, you learn about the X's and O's. You learn the quote-unquote perfect um, ways and the rules and programming and, you know, how to get from A to B. And then our clients come to us and they want to get from A to B, but actually our work of practicing what, whatever your work is, is the negotiation. It is all the nuance and the balancing act. Um, it's never, you don't really like arrive at perfect health. You are working with um, what you want and and the the confines or the constructs of the environment that you're in and you're changing mood and changing stressors and everything is always changing. Um, and so we, I think a lot of us go into our profession being like, okay, now I have all this knowledge and I'm just going to tell my clients like, this is what you need to do and then I'll fix them all. And of course, like that doesn't happen. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, us becoming good at our jobs really has to do with building relationships, um, establishing rapport, and then being in the relationship and helping our clients unpack psychologically what the barriers are from them getting to A to B. Um, and then seeing, you know, what it is they really want, because sometimes I've found too, what clients say is their goal. Like once we're in there and we're working on it, maybe that isn't actually the goal. Maybe it's something different. No, that makes sense. What do you think about self-awareness? Do you feel like, you know, clients and just people in general, do you think they need to like build up their self-awareness to actually figure out what the hell's going on with themselves? We can all be more, we can all be more self-aware. Yeah. Cause I find that, you know, People who have, like, disordered eating or eating disorders, sometimes they just think that it's actually normal until, like, someone notices it and it's like, hey, did you ever notice that you do this? 
And they're like, oh, what? Doesn't everybody do that? Yeah. And, like, for a long time, like, I've been struggling with binge eating. And for the longest time, I thought it was normal because I kind of grew up with the idea of, like, oh, you eat super clean during the week, Saturday cheat day, just go crazy for it. It's how every fitness professional does it. And then something hit me and I was like, I don't think this is normal because I'm like eating to a point where I can physically can't move. I don't think that's good for you. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people who are or are dealing with some sort of like disordered eating, they don't even know it. And it's just like part of their day. Like they're probably emotional eaters and they just go about it and they think it's normal. So I, I don't know if I can even turn this into a question, but like how would you coach someone or if someone can do it themselves to kind of figure out how to be more aware of what their behaviors are. Mm. Well, part of what's tricky about that scenario that you're painting is that you said like, this is what fitness professionals do. You know, they, or fitness people, fitness enthusiasts is they get after it and they follow their plan six days a week. And then they go bonkers on the seventh day. Um, and so the environment has really instructed you or guided you, molded your behavior and, and led you to believe this is what is normal. Like most of us think our families are quite normal until we leave and get our first job or go to college. And then, you know, we're a month out and we're like, holy shit, my family is weird. <laughs> you know, all these other people do it differently. So it has to do a lot with what you're exposed to. And what is very unique about working in mental health is that part of, there's a stigma that I hear from people about like going to talk to somebody is like weird. And why would you do that unless you're crazy? But actually your brain is the most complicated piece of equipment that you have. It is the most nuanced, sophisticated organ in your body. And the idea that you could use only your thoughts and only your feelings to make decisions without checking in with anybody else about those is just kind of a crazy thing to think. I mean, you know, if we're, if we're talking about fitness, for example, like we want people to get eyes on how our squat looks, how our deadlift looks, what, what our, how our form is, how's our hip hinge. Like these are basic kinesthetic movements. So if you compare that with how do you think about food, there's about literally 10 million more moving parts to how you think about food than how you hip hinge. So the idea that you can fix your thinking using your own thinking is no. I mean, no, (laughs) you can't, you can't. And we, and in so many parts of our lives, we would never think about fixing our issues with parts of ourselves that are an issue. Um, so, for example, I'm trying to think of, like, an example. Like, people, people who present with having an anxiety disorder or having alcoholism, it's, it's, there's a problem with their thinking. And they'll often come to treatment and say, I should have been in here three years ago, but I thought, you know, I can fix this problem on my own. But if your thinking is faulty, if your thinking is anxious and, and irrational, how can you use that? to fix your thinking. You need somebody else's help. You need another set of eyes. You need somebody else's piece of equipment, namely their brain, to get some eyes on that and fix it up. So if you've only hip hinged a certain way 
or you've only squatted a certain way, how do you even know that you're not squatting properly? If you've only eaten a certain way your whole life, how do you know that there's not a better way of eating? You really don't until you externalize it, talk about it, bounce it off of somebody else. No, that makes sense. And like a good example too is like, you know, you can go online and hear one coach speak about how to deadlift properly and then you go to another coach that will spit the same information but say one little thing differently and you're like oh my god i totally get it yeah i I would assume like it's almost the same thing like just having that light bulb kind of like pop on you're like whoa (laughs) what happened here yeah one of the things that makes humans unique is that we have an ability to combine words and expressions and communication in an infinite number of ways. So we can hear the same message, the the same point five times, but the fifth person might say it in such a way or use certain language or certain intonation that it just clicks with us. Um, and, And being social creatures is one of the things that has made us so intelligent and has advanced our civilization. And so my point is, Being able to talk to other people about anything you're doing in your life, whether it's psychological, physical, nutritional, um, will help you. It will benefit you. Doing it all by yourself really is a pretty limited way to handle any problem. That's really good advice. And I'm also kind of curious, like, is there anything that bugs you in the, you know, mental health um, industry that you see constantly happening? I'm trying to think. I, maybe not the mental. Well, the mental health industry. Um, I I hate how um, I hate how insurance works. Again, this might be. I, I think this is probably more of an American problem mm-hmm. than it would be for people who are listening in other places. But um, oftentimes, a barrier to people getting treatment is um, that either their insurance won't cover it because they're not sick enough or it will only cover a small percentage. And and so it ends up costing too much or, um, you know, that's an annoyance, but I don't really think that's what you're asking. I guess another way I could answer the question is, um, pop culture, like Mm -hmm. kind of how, how pop culture latches on to, um, things in psychology, um, and one thing that I used to actually be on board with this, and the, the farther I went along in my profession, the more I changed my mind, is the negative connotation that psychiatric medications have taken on um, in the last 25 to 30 years. And while I, I do think that lots of people take antidepressants or anti-anxiety or attention deficit medications... Um, I think that this idea that people don't really need medication and that medication is bad is something I don't like to hear because there are lots and lots of people out there who could improve their functioning um, and, and use medication to help them get themselves better. But because they have the stigma about medication, they close that door. Um, And I think that's something I hear, not really the mental health industry itself, but one of the ways I've seen the culture respond to 
medication that I don't think is helpful. No, fair enough. And the next question I want to get into is like, because I've been kind of bringing up mental health on my show for a while. And what's kind of the best way to like, if you decided like, okay, I'm ready to go talk to somebody, I'm going to hire someone professionally. Like, how do you find a good psychiatrist, psychologist? Because it's not like you're going to go on Facebook and like, okay, who's in my feed? That's a psychiatrist, right? Yeah, no, I know. This is such a good question. And this is, to me, this is the hardest point because once you have your therapist and, or once you have that provider, that practitioner and you, you like them and there's a connection, you're all set. It's the, it's almost like dating. It's like, um, you have to be able to have that connection. So, um, in a, in a meta-analysis and looking at all different kinds of psychotherapists and all different types of psychotherapy and researching like what is the most effective, ultimately what the research shows us is it does not make a significant difference what the brand or the type of therapy is. So for example, if it's cognitive behavioral therapy or psychodynamic therapy, therapy or, um, solution focused therapy, that doesn't seem to have an overall effect on the impact of the therapy. But what does is the quality of the relationship between the therapist and the client. So if there's trust and there's good rapport, if there's a good working relationship, that's, that's what makes therapy effective. So I think that people should approach looking for a therapist almost the same way they would approach, um, dating. And so what I mean by that is, um, go online, (laughs) even if you didn't ever do any online dating, like get yourself onto psychologytoday.com. Um, or if you know of some other, um, kind of directory for therapists in your area, I always use psychologytoday.com because it's pretty well populated, at least in the United States, it's pretty well utilized. You can type in your zip code, you can put in what type of health insurance you have, and you can also click on different kinds of issues like anxiety or work stress or relationship problems. And, um, what you will find is bios and photographs of licensed therapists that are in your area. And um, what I think that you should do is call at least two providers. So if you don't have access to an online directory, you could also ask your primary care physician because often they have some referral sources that they use. You could maybe not put something out on Facebook, but maybe ask a few of your friends, like, hey, have you ever talked to anybody? Do you know anybody? If you have a friend who lives locally who's a mental health professional or even something like a social worker or um, another kind of healthcare provider, you could ask them like, hey, do you know anybody good um, who you could refer me to? Because it's really just getting that one name (laughs) of somebody um, who you're going to feel like you can talk with and connect with. So yes, I would recommend calling at least a couple different people and spending a couple minutes on the phone with that person. So you can hear like, how do they talk? Is it easy to communicate with this person? Do they seem kind of weird on the phone? Um, um, you want to vet them a little bit. And then if you do make an appointment and you go to the first appointment, think about it like a first date. You're, you don't have to marry that person. You don't have to see that person. Like it's very plausible. They could be a great person and you could be a great person and there just isn't chemistry. So what you want is to feel comfortable 
you want to feel like I could tell this person what I'm actually thinking and feeling and feel safe. Um, and if those components are there, then that's great. And that's a match. And keep in mind to yourself, if you are like thinking about starting this process, this is often the hardest part is actually looking and connecting with the therapist. That's good advice. Cause like I've heard from the people that opened up to me about it, like their first experience with their first therapist was like the worst ever. And yeah, it took I them, yeah. And it took them so long to find another one. And it's yeah. usually the second one where they're like, Oh my God, where have you been all my life? Yeah. And just think about it as like, we've all been on dates where it just wasn't a match. Like, you know, there are thousands and thousands of therapists out there. And the chance that you might sit down with somebody who is not a fit for you is totally plausible. So I, I too have heard many stories like that. And it's such a bummer, you know, because I know that therapy can be so transformative. Of course I'm biased, but so to hear that somebody kind of got shut down, you know, because they, they had that first talk that they did not connect is such a bummer. But my take home is try again. That's just, that's just how dating works. <laughs> nice. Uh, the other thing I wanted to get into is actually like antidepressants. Cause I've been kind of curious about this, that, you know, I would say a good handful of my clients are on antidepressants. Yeah. But when I ask them, I'm like, like one client in particular, he's been on the same medication for like the last 10 years. And I'm like, okay. I would assume that you'd probably want to like update that prescription. Cause I feel like after 10 years, I don't know if things are still working the way they should. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, like from, you know, psychiatry or like from the psychologist's point of view, like, would you want to get to a point where you weed yourself off antidepressants if you're progressing? That's a great question. I'm going to start my answer by saying I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a medical doctor, so I don't prescribe medication. Mm -hmm. I'm a psychologist, so I am around antidepressants a lot and talk about them a lot. And also, most importantly, I have 15 years of anecdotal information of seeing the impact that antidepressants make. So I think I mentioned earlier, I started my career kind of being like medication, like, Mm -hmm. ugh, you know, but I have dramatically changed my mind and think that it can be a very, very useful tool, um, in helping people and part of a, part of a solution in terms of, should people be taking this medication indefinitely? There are really mixed feelings about this. I think it depends on a few things. When you ask this question, particularly about this client, um, one thing I wonder is what made you ask this question? Does this client experience negative side effects from the medication or do you feel that it's causing problems in any way? Um, like, I can't remember how it was brought up, but it was on the point of like, are you taking any medications right now? And he's like, yeah, "Yeah, I'm just on antidepressants. I'm like, oh, so how long have you been taking them? He's like, uh, it's been about 10 years. I'm like, okay, well, do you feel any different? He's like, oh, about the same. I'm like, all right. (laughs) So that's why I was like, in my head, I'm like 10 years, that's a long time. And I always thought like, you know, maybe you'd be able to get off them at one point. Mm, mm. So, um, and there, and there are mixed it really depends a lot on the client. So um, I heard one psychiatrist give a very helpful presentation, uh, and he spoke about exogenous versus endogenous depression, just to, just to use an example. Exogenous depression is, it means that there are um, environmental issues 
or things ex- external to the client that are causing stressors and creating a situation where the client is depressed. So um, this could this could be something like having a loss or um, like losing a loved one or getting fired from a job or being poor, um, things like that that could cause anybody to feel depressed. So you can get into clinical depression because life is really hard. That would be exogenous. Then there's endogenous mental illness and and in this instance, endogenous depression, which means you have a biological predisposition for depressive episodes. Um, and that could be because of heredity. It can also be because you're living in stressful conditions. However, if genetically you come from people who just don't make enough serotonin and who get extremely depressed in the winter time, it would probably behoove you to continue the medication indefinitely. Because although there is an argument that antidepressants can be corrective, there are also individuals who naturally have a predisposition for depression and other mental health conditions. So if taking an antidepressant can help them establish a higher baseline of serotonin or other neurotransmitter materials that can affect mood, why wouldn't they just take it indefinitely? So we have people with type 1 diabetes who, because of, because of their genetic background, do not take enough insulin. They need to take insulin forever. Like, period. There's not going to be one day where they're like, okay, now I'm all done. Um, There are other people who develop type 2 diabetes because of their habits, because of the nutrition that's around them, and they need insulin to correct the deficiencies that they have. Could they improve their diet and their lifestyle and one day work their way out of diabetes? For some people, yes. Um, So there's a difference there. Even though it's the same disease, um, how it got there, it looks very different. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, that was that was really well said. Um, so I so I think so I think the thing to consider for you in your instance is like there's a lot behind that curtain that you don't know about because yeah. people's natural tendency is to want to get off the medication. I will tell you, it does not. I have met people who have like very serious schizophrenia, very intense bipolar disorder. You know, things that really screw up their life. And what they want so badly is to stop taking the medication when they're doing well. You know, it's like, it's kind of just like conventional wisdom. Like, Hey, I feel good. Can I stop the medication now? But you have to ask yourself, do I feel better because I'm taking my meds? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, so if somebody is experiencing an exogenous depression, so in other words, they got depressed because like their girlfriend broke up with them, their dog died, they got kicked out of their apartment and they lost their job. Well, yeah, you know, and then they went through a year where they like took some meds, went to therapy, got a new job, got rid of that girlfriend, found some roommates and in a year is in like a way different place and now has a social support system and an exercise program that helps them to feel fabulous. Yeah, that person should definitely be talking about maybe it's time for me to start coming down off the SSRIs and removing them and seeing how I feel. If someone has had four or five major depressive episodes and they get in such dark place, they can't go to work and their mother or father has a history of depression. That's a, that's different. That may be something where they're talking to their doctor 
about using this medication to help them deal with a genetic predisposition that is not going anywhere regardless of their exercise, their nutrition, their support system, the self-help books they read. Okay. Um, if you had to give advice to the coaches out there that will have yeah. clients with you know, some sort of medication for their mental health, like what yeah. should they know and is there like a certain way they should approach their clients differently or like anything would be helpful? Yeah. So I think don't be scared of it. The same way you, you know, you ask your, your patients, are you on any medication? You know, if they said like, I'm taking, I don't know, something for hypertension, you probably would say, okay, how's that working for you? You know, have you seen your doctor lately to get that updated? Do you feel like that's, you're in a good place with that? I, I want you to be able to talk about psych medication the same way you would talk about physical health medication. So don't approach it with, um, like, like you don't have to whisper about it. <laughs> In other words, you know what I mean? Like it's something that's secret. If they're saying like, Oh, you know, I take Prozac. Okay. How long have you been taking that? Do you feel like you're in a good place with that? When's the last time you saw a doctor and just kind of like got a set of eyes on that to make sure it's in a good place. Because, because ultimately what you're always going to do is defer to the healthcare practitioner. So when you're in doubt, whenever you're in doubt, you're going to say like, um, did you check in with your doctor about that? Or, Ooh, if they bring something up about it, well, you, sh- you definitely want to see your doctor and have a conversation around that. So don't be afraid to address it. But then if you're in doubt, just bring up whoever the prescriber is and encourage that person to be talking to the prescriber. Okay. And then the other thing too is like, I know coaches sometimes feel awkward to ask and things like that, but Mm -hmm. on the flip side of like, you know, maybe your client is going through something Mm -hmm. and you're like, Hey, this is way beyond what I can do. Like what's the best way to approach to be like, Hey, you know what? I have this person you should talk to without them like flipping their shit at you and like storming off. Yeah. And, and so much of this, I think, has to do with the stigma around mental health. I love that you're asking this question, and this actually comes up very often uh, in consultations that I do for strength coaches. And my mantra is mental health is health. Mm-hmm. So when you are expressing concern about your client's blood pressure or the swelling in their ankles or some other physical health thing you see, it is the same as you expressing concern about symptoms that you're seeing around, maybe like their eating behavior or their anxiety or their mood. Um, and your client can sense your discomfort. So if you get awkward about it, they're going to get awkward about it. If you feel like, Ooh, this is like a, a shameful secret thing that I have to ask about in this extra sensitive way, you're going to cue your client that that's how they should feel about it. So the first thing I should want to do is encourage you to get a sentence or a paragraph that feels genuine for you and that sounds like it's free from judgment and you're just asking them about their health. So let's say, for example, you have a client who starts to download to you about how stressed they are or, or maybe about like how much drinking they're doing or if they're misusing their their prescription drugs or something that's starting to like feel like it's outside your scope, you, and depending on like what your tone is like and what your clients are like and what kind of rapport you have, is there some way you can say something like, 
you know, Hey Beth, you know, the last time, the last handful of times you've come in, you're, you're expressing what's going on and it sounds like it's hard and it sounds like it's intense and stressful. And I'm glad that we can talk about it, but I think it probably would be helpful for you to talk to somebody who's like a specialist in this. Um, cause I kind of don't, I don't know a lot about it or you could say something like, um, we're spending 20 minutes talking about this and I'm glad you can talk to me about it, but we're missing 20 minutes of your dynamic warm up or your strength training, or we're missing your finisher, um, at the end of every session because we're talking about this. Um, and so it could be really helpful to get a set of eyes on this for somebody who's a specialist or somebody who knows a lot about what you could actually do. Cause I have, I have no idea what you can do to address this problem. Do you think it would be a good idea if, like, a coach would bring up that they're seeing somebody and share their experience? That, like, yeah, in the beginning I was super skeptical, but, you know, for my mm. first session I was like, oh, my God, like, where has this been all my life? Because I find, like, for my clients that, you know, they're kind of scared to go see a chiropractor. I'll tell yeah. them, like, oh, I go to a Cairo every week and, like, yeah. she does this to me and I feel great after. And they're like, okay, maybe I'll try it. Do you think that would yep. be, like, a valuable tool for coaches? Yes. If you feel comfortable. So I have, I I can think of one coach in particular who I was in a group setting with and he, he said, that's how he approaches it with clients. Um, and that he feels super comfortable talking about it. And, um, he's a lovely, great guy with like fabulous social skills. And he's in a place I think with his own mental health where for him, there is no stigma. And, and actually he's extremely effective at opening the conversation because he's not awkward about it. You know? He's like, this is something I've dealt with. This is how it affected me. And and going to counseling did this for me. So, um, if you feel comfortable, it's a really awesome way, um, to be able to demonstrate for your client that it's part of your health. And if they're coming to the gym and working with a trainer, there's already some buy-in there because they already have a belief system of like, I want to take care of myself. I want to pay somebody to help me improve myself. And it's important for me to have somebody like watching what I'm doing and like talking about what I should be doing. So if they already buy into that physically for their training, you have a leg up on getting them to buy into that psychologically for their mental health. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Like I would love to see like a clinic attached to a gym. And in that clinic you have, you know, your physio, your chiro massage and a psychologist all under one roof and just like cover every little aspect of someone's life and health. And I want that job. Uh, <laughs> that, that would actually be, if I ever went back to having like a, um, like a day job, that would probably be the setting that I would say it's totally worth it to be in that kind of setting because that's what healthcare is. That's what holistic healthcare is, is not just fixing a problem once it's there. It's a preventative you know, total body and mind approach to what somebody's going through. And I think that kind of model is, is demonstrating for the person, like th- these are all the components of what makes you healthy and happy. Um, and so the, I, I love that visual. I love that image. And I hope that that's around one day. Hopefully we'll probably see it. But, um, the next thing I wanted to go into, cause like, man, we're almost at an hour. Like, this is all great information. That's why um, I kind of want you to talk about like your strong body, strong mind um, seminar you've been doing with Tony. 
because I find it like it's such like such a great idea to combine like your background and Tony's background into one like thing under one roof. So can you kind of just like describe what it is and how did you come up with the idea? Yes, thank you for asking about it. So for those of you who may not know, I'm a psychologist. I'm married to a strength coach. The strength coach's name is Tony Gentlecore. And Tony does a lot of speaking engagements and workshops and really over the years has um, kind of developed a niche in doing trainings and seminars for trainers. And so over the years, as we've been together and I, I have a master's degree in clinical psychology, but my doctoral degree is in sports psychology. My dissertation is on exercise motivation and exercise psychology. Um, you know, as we were just living our lives together, Tony would say, you know, I got this email from somebody with a question about a client, but I feel like you should answer it, not me. Or he'd bring up things that people asked at seminars or things that came up with his own clients that were psychologically based, not, you know, not about movement, um, or stability or mobility really were psychological in nature. So I wrote a couple blog articles for him and, um, you know, more and more, we just kind of realized, um, that there was this need in the industry to talk about psychological aspects of working with trainers. And that actually, that is the part of the profession that, dictates how much success you have. So understanding the X and O's of like program design and mobility, stability, kinesiology. Yes, that is important, but, um, preventing burnout, helping yourself to have success with your clients, maintaining your clients, getting new clients, working through clients, being human beings. Um, that is psychological work. And so what we decided was let's do a workshop together where we talk about the art of coaching, the art of being a personal trainer or a strength coach and weave together how, you know, t- t- what Tony's strengths are, which is really how to assess, um, and how to coach lifts and, and namely particularly the big lifts. And, um, in with that, how to better understand motivation, um, behavioral change, motivational interviewing, um, and the, the psychology that not only that your clients bring with you into their training, but also your own psychology, the way that you think and feel and how that impacts your work that you're doing with your clients. And this is a workshop. We call it uh, strong body, strong mind. We've done it. I don't know, maybe six times. We're doing it on Sunday, this Sunday at a, a little gym just outside of, of Boston. And, um, First of all, I absolutely positively love to do it. And the last time we did it, uh, we, we just did a workshop in July and we did it in a, a town called Bonn, Germany. And at the end of the day, there were some people who were giving feedback and two of the gentlemen who were in attendance said, you know, I came, I signed up because I know Tony Gentlecore. I always have wanted to meet him. I sort of came for his part of the training, but I feel like now that I've attended what I need and what will be most helpful to me moving forward is your part of the workshop. And I say that not to toot my own (laughs) horn, even though I am tooting my own, I say that because that really resonates with me that opening the discussion up about 
this, what's happening under the surface of the coaching cues and the program design is so helpful to discuss and to problem solve. And even coaches being in the same room with each other during the training and saying like, oh yeah, I've had that issue with a client. That's how I worked it out. Or even, even a trainer talking about a tricky client and the room, you know, the other people in the room saying like, whoa, that client's way out of line or that client's taking way too much of your time and energy, like is therapeutic. It's helpful to kind of get eyes on, um, how you're handling that kind of stuff. So it's, and it's always evolving. I think every time Tony and I do the workshop, we like tweak it a little bit or, um, so I hope we get to do it a bunch more times and even get to do variations of it, but that's strong body, strong mind. Oh, that's awesome. Cause like, I remember, um, when I used to work at a different gym, they kind of had their own take on the 80, 20 rule where mm. the training hour, the actual like training bit, like kind of what Tony does is only 20% of the hour. The mm. 80% is what's going on inside the client's brain. And we were always kind of, you know, educated as employees to really focus on the 80% because like you can know all the information in the world about the best way to deadlift. But it doesn't really yep. matter to Sally Sue, mom of three, going through a divorce that you're yep. trying to like make sure she shows up every single week just yep. to keep her life together. Yep. And like when I saw that you guys are doing this workshop, I'm like, oh, this is what our industry needs. We don't need more like new research articles of the best way to get single leg strength. <laughs> like mm-hmm. the 80% is what matters. Like you could be the shittiest coach out there, but if you could connect with an individual and get them to a better place, you're amazing. And there are so many of those I have been learning over the last several years that there are really not good trainers out there, but yeah. they are effective at relationships. They have strong social skills. They understand the nuance of, of what I call, you know, doing the dance with clients of working and negotiating out with clients. Um, and so I, I think because I'm married to a strength coach who really values education and technique and, um, sort of the more academic knowledge based things in the industry. I see really good coaches and I know a lot of really good coaches who have that kind of the 20% part that you're talking about. And so for them, they've got it. And what's going to help them grow is that 80% you're talking about, which is invisible when you are in school or you're, or you're working towards oh, yeah. your certification. It's just not addressed. Uh, so very last question, because we're coming okay. up to an hour. Yes. Where can people find you online? What workshops do you have coming up? And any other projects you want to plug on my show, you can do it right now. Thank you. <laughs> so I do have a website. It's called drlewisconsulting.com. Um, it is brand spanking new, so there's even a few things I need to add on there. But you are welcome to go there. You can uh, read about my services. Of course, I do in-person psychotherapy for people who are local, but I do also offer um, consultation um, electronically, so via a platform similar to Zoom that's um, secure um, for folks who maybe want a set of eyes on something that they're doing. And I I do that both for people who aren't sure if they should go talk to a therapist and just kind of want to talk about it a little bit before they make a decision. Or I've worked with um, fitness professionals who want to talk about, you know, the 
psychological components of their own work, their own career. Um, I've also worked with some fitness professionals who, when we talk, it ends up being more personal stuff, but they want to talk to somebody who is familiar with the fitness industry um, and won't have to be explaining that part of it. So you can find information about therapy, consultation, and then also speaking engagements and workshops. So I have a speaking engagement coming up this Sunday that's here in Boston. And then uh, there's a few things that aren't like scheduled yet, but um, that I'm in discussion for. So I will post those on the website, but I, I do know I'm going to, I should be in Singapore next summer, which probably a lot of you who are listening are not going to be in Singapore, but please stay tuned because, um, you know, this time of summer is typically a quiet time. So I'm hoping as the fall rolls around, I'll get more inquiries for, uh, doing workshops and seminars. I'm also really open to, um, gym owners, um, or people who work in continuing ed for gyms who are interested in in-services. So I've gone in to provide in-service for gyms like Mark Fisher Fitness or Amp Fitness that's here in Boston to talk to staff. And I've done one hour, two hour, uh, three hour workshops for, um, like a small group of fitness professionals, which is also a a lot of fun. And I feel like we can have productive conversation that way. If you're interested, I have other podcasts, um, like this one that are available via my website and some articles that I've written for different websites like Girls Gone Strong and, um, other online platforms. So that's the way to reach me. Of course you can, I'm happy to be your friend on Facebook, on Instagram. I'm, um, L I L E W 13 or Lulu 13. Um, and I would love to connect with whoever's out there. Perfect. So thank you so much for your time. This was amazing. Oh, thanks for having me. All right. So that's going to wrap up episode 162 with Dr. Lisa Lewis. Hopefully you enjoyed that one as much as I did. And I'm going to say this at the end of every single episode. Share this podcast with your friends and family on every social channel you have, along with signing up to the Cut the Shit, Get Fit newsletter, which is going to be in the show notes of this episode so don't miss out and also feel free to reach out email me add me on facebook and i will happily email you back message you back and tell you what's up and until next time everyone i'm your host for found and that's it for me